everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including an alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Hello and welcome to the Katie Halper Show. So excited to be joining you and be joined by everyone. We have a really exciting lineup. We'll be talking about not the death of the queen so much because I've never really paid that much attention to the royal family. So we're not going to be focusing on her too much as an individual, more about the legacy of the crown and the empire, what she represents, how we should be mourning her or not mourning her. And we have a great lineup to get us through these questions. We're going to bring in two guests from across the pond, if you will. Ahmed Twaij is a journalist and filmmaker whose bylines include The Independent, The Guardian Foreign Policy, and more. His latest piece is There Are Lots of Reasons to End the British Monarchy. King Charles III is the Best. And we're bringing in Mish Rahman, who is an elected member of the National Executive Committee for the Labor Party and also elected vice chair of Momentum, which is the largest left-wing campaign group in the UK set up to support Jeremy Corbyn during his time as leader. He's a socialist and trade unionist as well. So I'm going to bring in Mish and Ahmed. Thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having us. Of course. I wanted to start with you, Ahmed, because you wrote an op-ed, and I just read the name of it, but it's basically, there are lots of reasons to end the British monarchy. King Charles III is the best. Now, isn't it illegal in England to call for the end of the monarchy? I'm not even joking. It sounds like a, a corny joke, but... No, it's not illegal. Republicans do exist, uh, and that's Republican in the sense of people who believe in having a democratically-led constitution instead of a monarchy. So it's not illegal. So like Jeremy Corbyn was famously a Republican. Liz Truss was actually prime minister. She used to be a Republican, but has now claimed to be a, a lover of the monarchy. And obviously, as you mentioned, Republicans in the English context is very different. I was under the impression, though, that there was something called the Treason Felony Act of 1848, and that it still hadn't been repealed. Yeah, as in, as far as I understand, there are certain things that you... You just cannot say, which can be deemed as treason, but you can open a discussion about it, as in there is still freedom of speech. Okay, great. Well, I don't want to get you in trouble, so I just want to make sure that I got you on record on video saying that. If you need any help, let us know. We can start a petition to free you. But tell us why you wrote this piece, this op-ed that you did. And again, it's there are lots of reasons to end the British monarchy. King Charles is the best. Charles has no claim to moral leadership, negating any argument that the monarchy remains important as a sober ceremonial force in society. For someone who, as in values, the idea of democracy in a sense of people having a say, this whole archaic system of passing down power from one person to the next, would someone who, you know, may be less educated, less in position, as an example, everyone complains about how, how did Donald Trump get elected? But actually, people chose to have him in power, whereas someone like Charles is not someone who's chosen to power. He was just born to that position. So for us to be able to say he is the best man for that role, there's no way to prove that because it is this inherited process. And so my discussion in the article is actually, let's, let's look at some of the issues that Charles has had in his past. And it's things like tax evasion, where the rest of the UK is currently suffering with rising cost of living, inflation, a collapsing NHS 
the national health system. And he had his money being stored in offshore tax havens, previously in Bermuda, another time in various islands across the world. So it's just an interesting concept. And that's kind of the things that I was highlighting um, throughout the article. And that's some of the issues that I was questioning. You know, how can we have somebody who has these questionable moral choices? And it includes the extramarital affair that he had with Camilla Parker Bowles when he was married to Princess, or what's known as the People's Princess, Princess Diana. If he's got these questionable moral standings, can we really say he's a man who's fit enough to rule the country, let alone now as head of church, another role he's inherited? But as you pointed out in your article, the reason that he's able to be divorced and still be king is because of the precedent. Can you discuss that briefly? Yeah, so basically Henry VIII wanted to divorce his wife. I can't remember which of his six wives he wanted to divorce so that he could marry somebody else. And the church at the time didn't allow it. And this is God knows how many centuries ago now. The church at the time didn't allow it. So instead of him following the church, he decided to create his own church and called it the Church of England, made himself head of that church, changed the law to allow divorce to happen, and was able to divorce and continue being king. And because of that precedent, Charles was then able to divorce Diana and still remain heir to the throne. And of course, I don't care if people get divorced or anything like that, but I think it speaks to the hypocrisy that this person is supposed to uphold like traditional family values, which again, I don't respect, but he clearly preaches a certain thing that he doesn't live by. Mish, what do you think of Ahmed's argument? I think it's, first of all, quite refreshing that we're able to have this discussion because in the UK, we can truly say that the institutional media there has just gone into overdrive when it with its morning and obviously this discussion needs to happen in complete good faith because it is a sensitive subject because of the timing of it but if you do away with what the monarchy represents to me and you do away with the pomp and valor and you do personalize it I mean the death of a 96 year old woman who's been in power for what 70 years and is always seen smiling is always on telly is smiling or in the newspapers, or on coins and notes, uh, and she's no more, she's died, and obviously we know she's someone's mother, she's someone's grandma, and millions of people in the UK uh, do adore her, and rightly, in their opinion, they are grieving for someone they adore, but if again, if you take away the personality now, and you look at the institution that she represents, the monarchy, the crown, the regal institution of it all, and this service and duty that we regularly hear, How does this institution benefit the interests of me, a working class brown man who's born of immigrants in a Western white majority country? And as Ahmed says, why why during a cost of living crisis, when people can't eat or heat or either choosing between eating or heating, is an unelected head of state being able to transfer millions and millions of pounds worth of property from one monarch to another without any inheritance tax or the sovereign grant, which Ahmed refers to in his piece for NBC News. And when people are working two, maybe three jobs and still can't make ends meet, one ruler passes on to another ruler these millions and millions of pounds of unearned wealth. And meanwhile, with today, Ahmed is probably aware as well, we're told that up to 100 of his staff who used to work for him when he was Prince of Wales, they're being made redundant and not taken into or amalgamated into the king's new household. So while he inherits these millions, he's literally sacked a hundred of his own staff. I don't know if the American audience understands the kinds of entitlements that the monarchy gets or the benefits of being 
part of the crown. Can you talk about that? Either one of you. Yeah, so one of the things uh, that Mishra was mentioning was the sovereign grant, which equates to about $100 million a year that the royal family has as guaranteed income from UK taxpayer money. And actually last year, the royal family overspent by 17%. So the British government compensated that overspending by giving them an extra $26 million over the next two years. So this is like UK, whilst we're like suffering with inflation and cost of living and everyone's feeling the squeeze, our own tax money is going to benefit the royal family, despite them having their own private income. This is not like, let's forget about what they do in their public standing. They have their own private income. They own their own properties. They have their own businesses. Like Prince Charles has various businesses that he, or King Charles now, had various businesses that he owned. So they do have these kind of benefits. Another thing that Mish was mentioning is that in 1992, the royals during inheritance, they used to have to pay inheritance tax. But after 1992, a new law came in to say that they no longer have to pay inheritance tax. Whereas for the average citizen, if your parents pass away and let's say you inherit the property of your parents, you have to pay 50% inheritance tax on that property. Whereas obviously, Charles is going to walk around Buckingham Palace, all the other palaces, all the money that the Queen had just becomes his without having to pay a penny. So these are kind of some of the benefits that they have. And, you know, they spend it on some ludicrous things. There was one time he spent, Prince Charles spent, I think it was $30,000 on it just, just for a private chartered flight to go to the premiere of a James Bond movie. Another time he paid for a helicopter for a 70-mile journey to go watch a polo match. So these are some of the questionable things that have happened in his past. And this is somebody who claims to promote climate change and support those things. And these are the other interactions. So this like dichotomy of what's going on does lead to some questionable thoughts. And what is the atmosphere like now in England? I mean, you have a 10-day period of mourning when you're walking around. Does it feel like people are sad or what's the media coverage like? I mean, I don't think that anything is able to be covered. I think Chris Hedges wrote that Extinction Rebellion canceled something that they were going to do. So it seems like everything's on pause. The UK, like I said, I mean, it it seems to be we're in a state of institutionally forced mourning. Uh, I mean, people are going about their everyday business. I'm not in London, but I will be in London on the day of the funeral. So I will be able to check it out. I'm not going for the funeral itself or an already agreed meeting with a bunch of people. But the most important thing is while we are in this state of forced mourning, the monarchy aren't waiting for anybody. They're pressing ahead with their exchange of power. And that's from one head of state to another. While the reason for this is nothing more than to save the one and only institution which matters to the wealthy ruling class. And that's the preservation of their class, the preservation of the family of Windsor, which has been in power for what about a thousand years or whatever, and whose fortune, as we know, has been made at the misfortune of others, yes, from slavery to empire. I mean, there may be sorrow now, as we heard when the Barbados was handed over, but there never was any real apology, and there may be anguish and regret, but there's never been any reparations either. So I think these are questions that fundamentally have to be asked at one point or another. And can you talk about where your own families come from? And speaking of empire and colonialism, of course, that has changed the shape and the face of England. I think I I believe 10% of the people in England originate from countries that were part of the British Empire. So my where my family comes from is a direct legacy of empire. It's my family come from Bangladesh, which in my grandfather's age, it used to be called India, and then India and British Empire India. And then under uh, my father's age, that became East Pakistan because India and Pakistan split when the British Empire left India 
1947, that split to India and Pakistan. And because it was split down the middle, there was an East Pakistan and a West Pakistan. Bangladesh, which was called East Pakistan, then gained independence from West Pakistan in 1971. So what we see in Kashmir now is also a legacy of British Empire. And that's where my family come from. My father and my mother and my grandparents came to the UK from Bangladesh. Yeah, um, uh, my parents are originally from Iraq, um, which again is another country that has been invaded by the Brits numerous times um, during the 20th century. They were occupied in the 20s, and then again they were like invaded once again in the in 1941. Uh, and in fact, Winston Churchill actually wrote a, 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 in a secret memo. He, he wrote that he was in favour of using chemical weapons to poison. I can't remember the exact quote, but he said he, said he was in favour of strongly in favour of using chemical weapons to poison anyone who rebels in Iraq. Um, and this was at a time, you know, like when we were complaining uh, about chemical weapons used elsewhere in, in world wars. Winston Churchill was promoting the use of them in Iraq, so that's kind of like the legacy that 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 you know that that we see from 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 uh, from the British perspective um, as to where our ethnic origins are from. Um, so it does have an uh, an effect, and and you know we've seen the legacy across the world, like you know from the the detention camps that they built in Kenya for anyone who rebelled against the Brits and um, and and the Mau Mau tribes and things like that. So it's like a it's a very complicated relationship between being British and uh, and the empire. Um, and that's not even to mention like the Windrush scandal that happened afterwards where, you know, the the government and even the, the royal family asked for people to come from the empire to help rebuild UK after World War II because there weren't enough um, working uh, aged men. So they brought people from all over the world, especially in the Caribbean. And then now suddenly they lost their documents and are forcing them back uh, to return um uh, return to the Caribbean, even though there are people who have lived in the UK for 50 years, 40 years, um, and they've just deported them back to the UK. And that's that's what's known as a Windrush scandal. When was that? This is a scandal that had started under Theresa May, and it's actually still ongoing, even with with Preeti Patel, who's current Home Secretary, or was uh, Home Secretary. So it's an ongoing scandal started in 2017. But this legacy of colonialism, and uh, it, it's quite interesting, especially, especially after I wrote my article, and I, and I noticed this now it, uh, with an American audience is how quickly they've forgotten the legacy of colonialism. And especially for me, after this article published in an American outlet, I've received a lot of hate mail, like insane hate mail from American audience and Twitter and things like that. And I'm just like, do you, do you guys realize what you celebrate on July 4th? Like, I'm not sure people are aware what they celebrate on July 4th for them to come and attack somebody who's just, I've not even said get rid of a monarchy, I've just questioned it. So I find it quite ironic that people are attacking me for writing an article to question King Charles, when actually the whole celebration of July 4th was, let's get rid of the monarchy. There was a, there was a funny tweet that, that, I don't know if you've watched the musical Hamilton, um, but they put out a tweet saying, um, you know, on today, like, we're going to shut down the musical today because we're mourning the, de- the sad loss of Queen Elizabeth. And somebody just retweeted was saying, do you know what your play is even about? <laughs> um, because it's a play about the American Revolution and and, and overthrowing a monarchy. Um, but yeah. Although we're going to get to that in our next guest, it has a different interpretation of that. Just a little preview of Gerald Horn, who thinks that it was actually to avoid abolition that the United States was founded. But point extremely well taken. 
shifting gears a little bit, can someone explain to me why Truss became the way she is politically? Also, how she compares to Boris Johnson and what the British didn't like about Boris Johnson, because it's obviously not his conservative politics. Liz Truss had to replace Boris Johnson, who had to resign uh, because of the numerous scandals uh, he'd, he'd, he'd been through. I mean, uh, obviously, you've heard of uh, parties that went on under his watch in Parliament. And Truss was the actual former foreign secretary. And in, I think you're right to say in, the, in her youth, she was an ab- abolitionist. So uh, she's since changed her views. And she also used to be a Remainer in the Brexit uh, debate and then she changed her mind then she was a former liberal democrat and it's quite amazing that both the leader of the tories and the leader of uh, our party the labor party were also both abolitionists in their student years but are now pretty much uh part of uh, the uh the establishment and this Liz trust is a new leader who nobody knows really what the real who the real Liz trust is and it's probably at a time when we have a real dearth of talent uh in British politics, in front row British politics, where people like Boris Johnson, Liz Truss, and even our own leader, Keir Starmer, people accuse them of not believing in what they stand for, and they, like, shape-shift into whatever popular view is or whatever benefits their individual career path. But we're fearful uh, in England that we've got a new leader who uh, we're very fearful of. We feel that this is the most right-wing uh, leader that we could hope for with a most right-wing cabinet uh, and also it's at the worst possible time when uh, we've got the worst possible leader who will make the lives of people in this country even harder than it has been coming out of 12 years of austerity which led to what 150,000 plus deaths and then a pandemic under Boris Johnson's leadership which led to over another 150,000 so these Tories through their austerity measures and their handling of the pandemic are responsible for the excess deaths of over a quarter of a million British people. And it's not going to get any better. It's going to get worse. It kind of tells you the state of British politics when it's not the austerity measures that that, that made the, the Boris Johnson collapse. It's not the collapsing NHS that made his, it's not inflation, it's not the rising energy. But none of that stuff was what made his leadership end. What made his leadership end was because of a him promoting somebody who had a alleged sexual assault uh, claim against him. And that really tells you the state of British politics that they're in. That it's not those issues that are, are, are what we're discussing, the main things. It was just that one little, um, so, which was a horrible thing to happen to that individual. But like we said, austerity has killed over 100,000 people, et cetera, et cetera. They're not the things that we're like primarily focused on. Um, it's those other things. And and, and then the, other, the only other thing I would add about Liz Trust is that actually she's, she's now quoting Margaret Thatcher as if she was her role model. Which is an insane perspective to do, especially at a time when we're, ha- we're we're suffering the worst inflation that there is out there. It would be like saying, you know, Ronald Reagan's policies were so great, we need to like implement more of those in America right now. Um, uh, and you know, as 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 much as I don't think Biden is a great leader, he has he he would never go for Ronald Reagan like type policies. Uh, and and the same, but whereas Liz Truss is now saying, no, she she believes in those policies. What does abolitionist mean in the British context, by the way? Mesh, you referred to that term. In that context, I meant abolish the monarchy. She was very anti-monarchy. She, in her own words, she said it's disgraceful to have an elected head of state with so much wealth. It's out of date. I think you'll find these clips are quite widespread. She's kind of like a Kristen Cinema. I don't know if you guys know about Kristen Cinema, but she used to be 
a progressive. She was in the Green Party, and now she's probably one of the most right-wing Democrats in Congress. She famously voted against raising the minimum wage. I think the danger with these people are that don't have any politics is that they adopt whatever policy that they think the audience will like. And I think the most important thing is she was chosen not to be the leader of our country, not by the people of the country, she's chosen by 81,000 members of the Conservative Party who are mainly rich, white, middle-class men, mainly because she's such an extremely right-wing neoliberal who believes in a tiny state. And all she's talking about now is cutting taxes for the rich and more privatisation. And just at the time we need the opposite, it's the most right-wing leader we can help for. And I mean, what we fear that it's gone from proto-fascist in Johnson to almost the extreme right-wing now. Yeah, and she's excited about using nuclear weapons, I saw, when she was asked about that. I mean, that's that's like Hollywood stuff, isn't it, using nuclear weapons? What What's going to be really damaging to us is that she wants to overturn any regulation that protects workers. She wants to take away workers' rights to collectively bargain. She wants to take away trade unions' rights to strike. She wants to get rid of any protection that workers have. I mean, the workforce in the UK is already overworked and underpaid. And she wants to remove protection to wages, remove any chance of reasonable wages and also any decent terms and conditions. It's just people already down to their bare bones and she's about to take us back to the dark ages. And I'm not really exaggerating. This is what's happened. We've got energy bills which are so out of control. They've already more than doubled over the last 12 months are, are on the verge of quadrupling. And that's going to put millions and millions of people into pure poverty. And that's We're not talking the most extreme poor people. We're talking ordinary people there's campaigns called don't pay i mean really people can't pay just can't afford to yeah i think that's the issue is when we're measuring economic growth and this is both both sides of the atlantic usually like economic growth is measured by things like gdp or stock price or how the stock market is doing and things like that but that doesn't really measure true economic value because when we look at wealth inequality that's increased exponentially compared to how the gdp has improved so yes, although on paper it might look like that, you know, America's economy has grown or Britain's economy has grown, the reality is that the wealth inequality has tarnished big time. So although a few people may be, you know, flying their private jets, there are some people who are literally living and the winter's coming up will be dying of cold weather. It sounds like the opposition to Johnson is more like the Netanyahu, Israeli opposition to Netanyahu, which was not about his policies, but just about particular scandals and corruption. Yeah. Any final words that you guys wanted to share or comments or thoughts? I think it's important because of the context. This is a U.S. mainly, as in you, your your audience is mainly U.S., but I'm sure it's worldwide. But I think uh, the the fact that our NHS is also, uh, the fear is that it's at risk because obviously the NHS, the National Health Service, is, is our pride. It's our greatest asset. And it's because it's free to use at the point of need, something that... Uh, you, our brothers and sisters across the pond, probably don't get these Tories and especially Liz, under Liz Trust. They just hate it because they don't need it. They all have private health care and we are so dependent on it. And because, as I said before, what the 170,000 or so conservatives who are mainly white, mainly male, mainly live in rural countries uh, and they elected trust, they don't see the reasons why their taxes should pay for a service that benefits 60 million other people who really need it. And we've been trying to privatise it for years. Uh, and I think we need some solidarity from across the pond, uh, from people, because uh, most of the companies 
uh, that are going to be privatizing will be American-backed healthcare companies. And I think it's we need we need uh, some kind of leverage from both sides of the pond to make sure that that doesn't happen. So I think that's what I'd like to push before I leave you to it. Okay, great. Want to just show you guys this video before you leave, since we mentioned Iraq. Here's the Queen in 91. As a nation, we are rightly proud of our armed forces. That pride has been fully justified by their conduct in the Gulf War so far, as they, with our allies, face a fresh and yet sterner challenge. I hope that we can unite in praying that their success will be as swift as it is certain, and that it may be achieved with as small a cost in human life and suffering as possible. Then may the true reward of their courage be granted, a just and lasting peace. Yeah, it didn't work out so well, considering that was round one of the Iraq war. The same war never ended. What's interesting is that when she said, you know, we're proud of, of the armed forces and what, and what they do, it almost makes it so that you can't question them. And then 10 years later, when they reinvaded, Theresa May actually banned people from suing the British army for crimes in Iraq. So it's quite ironic that, you know, it's painting a picture where these are almost free of any sin, the British army, whereas we know that they did commit various crimes, as well as the American army when they did invade and occupy Iraq. Well, thank you guys so much. This is great. Love getting your guys' perspective and would love to have you back on. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Take care. And if you are just tuning in, welcome to the Katie Halper Show. We're about to bring in Gerald Horn, who holds the Moore's Professorship of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston. His research has addressed issues of race and a variety of relations involving labor, politics, civil rights, and more. He's the author of over 40 books, if you can believe it. So without any further ado, Dr. Gerald Horn. Hello. Hello. Welcome. Yay. Welcome to the show. Welcome back. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. Just wanted to ask you if you could kind of set the scene for the relationship between empire and the British monarchy historically. I know it's a really easy question, right? Well, first of all, actually, you probably should have a parasitologist on with me. That is to say, a scientist who studies parasites, because this so-called royal family has been feeding on the bodies of the host, people like myself, for example, for over centuries. Now, in order to understand the British Empire, you have to ask yourself, how was it that this minor nation on the fringes of Europe in the 1500s, by within a century, was well on its way to building this mighty empire on which the sun never set? And it's a long story summarized in my book on the 16th century. But for the sake of our audience today, I'll say that the simple answer is, is that London basically did an end run around religious conflict. Recall that the major empires in the 1500s were the Catholic powers, Spanish and Portugal, and the Muslim power, speaking of the Ottoman Turks. And when Martin Luther arises with the Protestant sect in 1517, England signs on. And what happens is that unleashes a tidal wave of religious conflict between Protestants and Catholics. England basically decides to improvise, and it migrates to race as a concept, that it allows it, number one, to incorporate under its flag many who it had been warring with, speaking of the Irish, the Scots, the Welsh, all sort of recalculated as being white. And at the same time, 
it designated those not so inducted into those hollowed halls of whiteness as being inferior, a subject to being plucked, subject to being enslaved. In fact, Andrew Young, who you may recall, was the former mayor of Atlanta, former United States ambassador to the United Nations. Uh, he argued that London basically invented racism. Now, that may be a bridge too far, but it does speak to the fact about how the British Empire was basically built upon conceptions of race and racism, uh, which extended well into the 20th century. For example, if you look at their colony, Hong Kong, uh, turned over to China uh, circa 1997, uh, you may recall that the racial divide there was between those of, quote, and if you go into the British archives uh, in Kew Garden, type this in and you'll come up with hundreds of files, or if not thousands, those of pure European descent, which was their definition of whiteness, and everybody else, which was basically the Chinese, who were made to be second-class citizens in their own homeland. And this has had a very noxious impact upon politics. I think it helped to uh, sideline uh, just struggles uh, in Scotland and in Ireland, because as you know, uh, many in Scotland and Ireland, when they crossed the Atlantic, uh, they were rebranded as white and therefore were able to participate in the colonial feasts in the Caribbean and in North America. And it's striking that when the British Empire goes into eclipse in the 20th century, you begin, as you do see today, to see Scottish nationalism rise. Now Scotland wants to be independent. I dare say that because of the ham-fisted policies of this man referred to as King Charles III, that uh, Scottish independence will happen sooner rather than later. And I haven't even touched upon the anti-democracy of it all. I recall the former South African president, Thabo Mbeki, reprimanded the British foreign minister after the foreign minister had castigated certain African leaders for not leaving office. And he said, in your country, the head of state powers transmitted just genetically. I mean, here you had this woman that just served for seven decades, given the fact that these billionaires are trying to find the cure, if you like, to death. I mean, he may serve under the president's rules of forever. So this is just an outrage. And as I said, uh, you really need a parasitologist on to explain what's been happening in the UK in recent decades. And what are some of the things that happen under the Queen's watch to the extent that, and this isn't about her as a personality, but just so people understand, I think not everyone knows what kind of atrocious historical episodes there have been more recently. People think of, okay, slavery ended and that was it. But can you talk about the recent kind of neocolonial oppressions, killings, massacres that happened? Well, first of all, massacres. I'm sure many in your audience are familiar with what happened in British India approximately a century ago with the Amritsar massacre. Some may be familiar with what happened in Bengal uh, during World War II when Britain basically engineered a famine that killed tens of thousands, if not millions. A decade later, in 1953, you saw Her Majesty's Armed Forces intervene in Guyana on the northern coast of South America to dislodge the left-leaning leader, Chetty Jagan, and then stir up to this very day antagonisms between the Guyanese of African descent, Guyanese of Indian descent, 
I'm sure your audience is familiar with what happened contemporaneously with the overthrow of Chetty Jagan's regime. That is to say, the suppression of the revolt in Kenya, the so-called Mau Mau revolt, where folks were tortured, folks were castrated. Reparations of a sort have been approved as a result of righteous struggle by the Kenyan people. But let me recommend a, a, a movie. I don't know if you've seen uh, Sean Penn's movie, The Falcon and the Snowman. It's a, I recommend it highly. It, it, it talks about how Britain, or Her Majesty, if you like, being this so-called figurehead ruler in places like Australia, that London can manipulate the governor general, who is the crown's representative in Canberra, in Australia, to dislodge a government, which happened in 1975 with the Gulf Whitland government, a Labour Party government in Australia, leaning left, the anti-Australian participation in the U.S. genocidal war in Vietnam. Something similar happened in Grenada in 1983 when the U.S. forces under Ronald Wilson Reagan uh, intervened at the behest of the governor general, her majesty's representative. And so I could go on in this vein, but uh, this sort of celebration of this family, which has been an embodiment of white supremacy, and in fact, you see it, so-called King Charles III, recalled that his father was of Greek origin, for example, which means that he's half Greek. And it's that sort of intermarriage of these royal families over the decades and centuries that has helped to consolidate a certain kind of pan-European rule, which is really just a neo-version of white supremacy. As an historian, how do you think people should talk about someone when they die? Do you have any guidance on that? Well, you know, I'm not ghoulish, so I don't celebrate the deaths of people. I respect the people who mourn their relatives. I even respect the people in London who may have been introduced into mourning the death of this parasite. However, I think it's fair to say that on the ledger of history, that uh, she has to be held to account, just like her son, so-called King Charles III, needs to be held to account. Because uh, I'm sure you saw the article in the New York Times this morning, that is to say, September 13, 2022, and the fabulous wealth of this family. Uh, This family may be the wealthiest landlords on planet Earth, their ultimate wealth is a closely guarded state secret, but it's fair to say that they're certainly part of the 0.0001% worldwide. I would venture to guess that uh, they may have more wealth than the Walton family of Walmart fame, more wealth even than Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk, and then <laughs> it's untaxed. And so here, here you have a Britain going through these multiple crises, including an energy crunch, including the National Health Service, which is crumbling before our very eyes, including a hunger and unemployment. And you have this parasite, so-called King Charles III, who's sitting on a major fortune. It's obscene. And has collected literally like suitcases full of cash and stashed his money in islands. You kind of can't make it up. It's just 
out of a James Bond movie, basically. James Bond movie villain behavior. There is also a professor of linguistics who set off a storm recently. She tweeted right when the queen was getting sick or when it was she was close to death. She tweeted, I heard the chief monarch of a thieving, raping, genocidal empire is finally dying. May her pain be excruciating. And then Twitter removes that tweet. And she followed up by saying, if anyone expects me to express anything but disdain for the monarch who supervised the government, that sponsored the genocide that massacred and displayed half my family and the consequences of which those alive today are still trying to overcome, you can keep wishing upon a star. And Carnegie Mellon, which is her university, condemned what she said but didn't try to sanction her. So her job is not under threat. But what do you think of that assessment? Well, it's typical U.S. praxis. That is to say, they shout from the rooftops about free speech until free speech violates one of the written or unwritten codes that they hold dear. Uh, Certainly, we should come to the defense of this professor. Uh, We should rebuke and reprimand Jeff Bezos, who brought attention uh, to her tweet and therefore unleashed the hellhounds against her. Uh, uh, here, Here I am, a direct legacy, I'm afraid to say, of the unlimited British Empire being of African descent, the descendant of enslaved Africans, sitting in North America as a result of the African slave trade in which Britain and its bastard offspring in North America, now known as the United States, played a major role. Uh, Speaking this language developed in Northwest Europe, and I'm supposed to celebrate the legacy of these parasites? I mean, these people must think I'm as dumb as they are. In terms of the Jeff Bezos tweet, he had tweeted in response to her initial tweet, which was removed by Twitter, which I think it's pretty reprehensible that Twitter removed that tweet. But as you said, people can be selective with free speech. But Jeff Bezos tweeted, this is someone who's supposedly working to make the world better. I don't think so. Wow. And she wrote back to him, may everyone you and your merciless greed have harmed in this world remember you as fondly as I remember my colonizers. I didn't realize this until recently that although the British government has paid some very minor reparations, for instance, for its torture and killing of the people in Kenya during the Mau Mau rebellion, that they had also paid slave owners reparations quite generously. Oh, that's right. You may recall that in 1833, uh, London moved to abolish slavery, not least because Africans were on the warpath, particularly in Jamaica and the slaveholders were running the risk of losing their lives in addition to losing their investments. So London decided that the better part of wisdom was to withdraw from that hateful, iniquitous system. But in the meantime, they decided to pay a gigantic reparations to the enslavers, no reparations to those who had contributed free labor. And the sum was so huge that it was still being paid off in the 20th century, well into the 20th century, perhaps even during your lifetime in the 20th century. So obviously the order of the day is to demand reparations from London, from the Crown, uh, to relieve so-called King Charles III of some of that massive fortune that he's sitting on. And to that end, you may recall that just days ago in Accra, Ghana, uh, yet another former British colony, uh, there was a major conference on reparations that feature the uh, head of state uh, speaking uh, to that end. And also, as you know, in the United States, there is a major movement uh, towards reparations 
to the descendants of enslaved Africans. There was a major movement in the Caribbean as well. And speaking of the Caribbean, we fully expect Jamaica, Antigua, Barbuda, for example, to withdraw King Charles III, as he is now known, from his unwarranted role as head of state. And as he does so, as he's leaving that office, I hope that there is also a movement to relieve the crown of some of the wealth that they stole. For example, if you look at the wealth and jewels of Queen Elizabeth, some of these diamonds were stolen from Southern Africa, for example. There's a movement in South Africa in particular to have that wealth returned, and that's the sort of movement, it seems to me, democratic forces in the United States should get behind. And of course, Barbados cut ties with the Queen in 2021, November 2021. So I think there'll be more countries perhaps doing that. Well, certainly. And, and I think our neighbor to the north, Canada, should be first in line. Now, as a historian, I recognize why in the 19th century, uh, Canada felt it necessary to tie itself to the apron strings of the crown because they feared a, a U.S. invasion, which, of course, happened during the so-called War of 1812. But uh, I don't think Canada... I don't think Canada should fear a, a U.S. invasion in 2022. And in fact, if they do fear such an invasion, uh, I'm not sure if they should be part of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization headed by the United States of America. They should develop and devise uh, other kinds of security guarantees. So the monarchy is a relic of history. It needs to be pushed into the dustbin of history and should be written about with the kind of them and vigor that it once inflicted upon enslaved Africans to name only one group of people it so terribly exploited. Shifting gears a little bit, what are your thoughts on NATO expansion? Yeah, <laughs> that's obviously been a disaster. I mean, as you know, the Pope uh, suggested some months ago that uh, NATO uh, barking at the door of Russia helped to ignite this current conflict, which is having uh, manifest consequences for Western Europe. Your previous guest spoke about the energy crunch. You have factories being shut down in Germany uh, as we speak. On the other hand, it seems to me that the European leaders have been chumps, basically, because you see that Washington historically has sought to scoop up those energy markets from Gazprom, from Russia. And now you see these nat liquid, liquefied nat natural gas exporters from my neck of the woods are dancing the streets. I should turn my camera around. You, you'll see them dancing in the streets of Houston, the so-called Petro Metro, because they're licking their lips at the possibility, the probability, uh, that they'll be making profits hand over fist. But the situation is, is obviously very dangerous. You might have noticed that when Secretary Blinken was in Kiev just a few days ago, when that latest multi-billion dollar package was announced, that the news did not focus on the point that about half of that package was going to the Baltics, Lithuania, Estonia, Latvia. A significant percentage was going to Georgia, Bulgaria, et cetera. With all of the celebration of the latest Ukraine counteroffensive, in Kharkiv, people should not rule out the possibility of some sort of multi-pronged attack 
upon Russia, which would be obviously quite dangerous, opening the gates of hell, particularly as President Putin and President Xi plan to meet in Central Asia a few days from now, the first trip to President Xi has taken outside of China in a thousand days since COVID began to bite in China. And you also see these reports coming in the Washington Post about the North Koreans sending military materiel to Moscow. So it seems as with what happened on this small planet a century ago, there, there seems to be a certain sleepwalking into what could be either a world war or a wider European war, which I'm afraid to say would obviously drag in the United States of America more deeply than it's already appearing to, to be. And want to know your thoughts on the way the United States government talks about China as a looming threat. And it's interesting, you never hear the United States suggest competing against China with high-speed railroads. It's always through militaristic actions. So what are your thoughts on that relationship? Well, obviously, this anti-China psychosis is very useful to the U.S. ruling elite because, for example, it tends to bind the two parties together. There's not that much daylight between the Democrats and the Republicans when it comes to this anti-China hysteria. That's helped to undergird the so-called CHIPS Act, which Mr. Biden has signed into law, because it's, there's a fear that if China seizes its rebel province, Taiwan, Taiwan includes the corporation, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturer, which is one of the most profitable corporations on planet Earth, and has a stranglehold, along with Samsung of South Korea, over the chips industry, that it could be game over for U.S. imperialism. And so the idea, as evidenced by Mr. Biden's visit to Ohio just a few days ago, to try to build up the chip manufacturing in the United States, and the Republicans signed, at least some Republicans signed on to it, certain Democrats signed on to it too. And you may have noticed that I think a turning point, speaking historically, in terms of the downturn in relations between Beijing and Washington came just last month when Speaker Nancy Pelosi rather adventuristically decided to visit Taiwan, followed by Senator Ed Markey, another Democrat, followed then by Senator Marsha Blackburn, a Republican. So this is a very dangerous turn of events. And uh, actually, I was giving a lecture on this uh, just a few days ago. And one of the points that I mentioned, which I think should be chilling to us all, is that uh, we should not find it accidental or coincidental that thus far the only use of atomic weapons on planet Earth took place in August 1945 against that previous challenger to U.S. hegemony, speaking of Imperial Japan, one of the most profound episodes in racist murder in human history, which is saying something. And we should keep that forever in mind when we talk about U.S. relations with China, not least because there have been about 19 tabletop exercises involving war games between U.S. war planners in Washington gaming out a war against China, and the United States has lost all 19 tabletop exercises. So it's not as if this is going to be like the old West where the cowboy gets the drop on the bad guys, I'm afraid to say that China might be able to turn the tables 
leading to the incineration of all of us. Let us hope not. We have a comment from Brian who says, Bernie Sanders rightly pointed out that the CHIPS Act was a massive corporate welfare bill. Well, Bernie Sanders is correct. <laughs> I mean, uh, it, it's really something, is it not, that at a time when Los Angeles has tens of thousands of homeless people, where hunger continues to stalk the land, and many in Congress says, well, there's no money to do anything about these domestic problems, and yet uh, billions can be found to dole out to these uh, blood-sucking corporations. Uh, billions can be found for war in Central Europe, although, to be fair, uh, these billions supposedly going to war in Ukraine, a lot of it's going to the U.S. military-industrial complex, and the United States is banking on the point that three years from now, that those weapons can then be shipped and the war will be uh, continuing. Uh, not to mention the fact that, well, when oftentimes when the weapons uh, hit the ground in Ukraine, they're destroyed by Russian forces, or there's some sort of, uh, as they say in the United States, some of the weapons fall off a truck and fall, fall into the hands of the black marketeers, who then perhaps sell them across the border into Russia itself. It, it's obviously scandalous. Right. And when CBS made a documentary showing that and showing that an estimated 70 percent of the weapons were not winding up in the hands that they were intended to wind up in, they had to remove that documentary. It was called Arming Ukraine. I recall that very well. In fact, uh, another example of the operation of the First Amendment and free speech in the United States of America, which this Carnegie Mellon professor should could tell us about uh, in many chapters and verses. The last question I had for you was, given that there's been a lot of discussion of the end of the Cold War, although, of course, one could argue that there is a new Cold War that we're already in the midst of. But with the death of Gorbachev, there's been a lot of discussion about how great it was that the Cold War ended. What are your thoughts on the end of the Cold War? I mean, is it just a foregone conclusion that that was a good thing? <laughs> well, I'm not as young as I look, by the way. And so in, in 1988, you can look it up. In fact, I, I quoted in my book on Southern Africa. This is during the height of Gorby mania. I wrote a piece for The Guardian of New York City, which is this now defunct New York radical weekly, where I pointed out that the deal that was emerging between Washington and Moscow was an end to these so-called regional conflicts. Uh, what that meant was pulling the plug on the forces that the then Soviet Union were supporting fighting apartheid in South Africa. As I also point out in that book on Southern Africa, it's no accident that the last apartheid leader, F.W. de Klerk, chooses to negotiate with Nelson Mandela a week after the fall of the Berlin Wall because he recognized that with the African National Congress's main ally, withdrawing from the battlefield, that the ANC would be disadvantaged. And you could make an argument that the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, three years before democratic elections in South Africa, taking place in 1994, has left the ANC handicapped to this very day. It's only a country with a mid-sized economy, a population of less than 60 million, and yet it's had to face not only the domestic allies of Washington, 
but the North Atlantic bloc generally. So I'm, I'm afraid to say that uh, I was not necessarily one who was celebrating Corby Mania, although once again, I regret his passing as I regret the passing of any human being. Well, thank you so much. This has been so excellent. And thank you so much for your time. Any final thoughts that you want to share? Well, only that this crisis in Ukraine may be spinning out of control, particularly in light of this successful counteroffensive. I think that it may inflate the expectations in Washington. It may put wind in the sails of the warmongers who might decide that the time has come to execute a plan that has been on the table in Europe for centuries. And by the way, I wrote about this a few days after February 24, 2022, on the website of the Black Agenda Report. What I mean, and this will really connect our two discussions, is that if you look at the map of Europe, most of Europe is Russian territory. Russia's population of about 150 million is almost twice that of Germany. When the Western European nations led by Britain were getting fat on the plunder of Africa and the Americas, London was moving east across Asia, establishing Vladivostok, its window on the Pacific in 1860. And so as a result, there was Europe was out of balance in the sense that these major world powers were not necessarily a major power in their own backyard. That led to Napoleon's invasion 200 years ago. You could make an argument that it led to Hitler's invasion about 80 years ago. And so now the plan is finally to resolve the Russia question, to overthrow the regime, divide up the country. It wasn't enough to divide up the Soviet Union. Now the time has come, it has thought to divide up Russia. And then these Western European nations could take advantage of all the resources, the titanium, the natural gas, the oil. Otherwise, they'll find themselves dependent upon natural gas from Algeria, which is not forgotten the war inflicted by France, only ending with independence in 1962, or they'll be dependent upon the petroleum from Angola, which has not forgotten the NATO-US-sponsored war before independence and actually after independence in 1975. So the Western European nations and their backers in Washington have a real dilemma now with this conflict. And they may decide to go for a riverboat gamble, but with this tightening relation between Beijing and Moscow, this riverboat gamble could explode in their faces. Last thing, because someone just put a comment, don't forget Britain had 50,000 Irish slaves, not indentured servants on Barbados in the mid-1600s. Well, you know, it's very interesting, this relationship between London and the Irish. As I say in my 16th century book, one of the questions going forward in the 16th century was whether London was adopting stratagems in the Americas and in Africa and then implying, applying them to Ireland or vice versa. And certainly there was a rather gross exploitation of Ireland. But at the same time, as, as I hinted a few moments ago, many uh, Irish and Scots, they made their peace with the empire. Look at the United States of America. Look at the uh, anti-draft riot, so-called, in New York City in 1863 portrayed in Martin Scorsese's movie, The Gangs of New York. You can find clips free on YouTube, by the way. It was quite horrific, quite horrendous, targeting black people, 
And so it's been a very mixed picture with regard to the Irish question, as it used to be called. Thank you so much again, and would love to have you back. Oh, what are you working on now? Sorry, last question. What are you working on now? Well, you know, my book on Texas just dropped. I'll get a copy of that, and we'll have to have you back on to talk about that. The subtitle includes the roots of U.S. fascism, which may be around the corner, I'm afraid to say. Well, I really look forward to reading that, although it's probably not much of a beach read, but it's, as always, I'm sure, engrossing, which is your writing is always, it's as page-turning as it can be when it's about something as serious as it is. Right on. Thank you so much. Good luck to you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. To hear the rest of that discussion, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.